is an audio platform created to educate, inform, and empower women to take charge of their physical and mental health. Join Shalana Battle and her occasional guests as they discuss many issues and health topics that concern women. While many health tips and advice will be discussed on this platform by licensed professionals, it should not take the place of seeking help from your own physician or therapist. If you feel that you need professional advice or medical assistance, do not hesitate to contact your provider. Now, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Eavesdrop. I am your host, Shalana Battle. I can't believe we are already at the end of another year. Man, 2020 has been what I like to call a long but very quick year. So much has happened between COVID-19, civil rights issues, and natural disasters. I think we all should take a deep breath and just focus on one thing that gave us peace this year. And this could be something that gave us joy, one thing that may have outweighed all negativity. Let's do that now. Close your eyes and take one second to direct your energy on something that makes you feel God's goodness. Go ahead, take a deep breath and focus all your energy on that one thing. Yes, I think that we should always reflect on God's goodness during challenging times. When we do this, we will realize that most of our good days definitely outweigh the bad. Now, let's get to today's topic. Today, I want to focus on a subject that is commonly overlooked because of its sensitivity and because of the stigma that society has placed on it. The topic is intimate partner violence, also known as IPV. IPV is a health concern that plagues all genders. However, it affects women at disproportionate rates. There are many health complications that are related to IPV, and these include recurrent sexually transmitted diseases, infertility, chronic pelvic pain, anxiety, depression, and even death. 43 women have experienced some form of intimate partner violence in the United States. And because of the many changes that COVID has caused, This number is expected to rise. Factors such as isolation, increased stress, anxiety, financial instability, joblessness, and lack of access to resources have changed the dynamics of many homes and may have caused abuse to occur for the first time or it may have worsened the situation for others. Now, now, is a better time than any to put IPV on the forefront. So today I will have a candid conversation with Emily Jonas, a domestic violence community educator for women in distress of Broward County. As we educate and inform our listeners 
It is my prayer that we may reach all who need this information. I hope that it will be a bridge to a better life for those who may be in this situation. Now, without further ado, here's the conversation. Hi, Emily. <laughs> so, Hi, Shalana. How are you doing? <laughs> good. I'm good. On this evening, I'm glad that you decided to um, sit down and have this conversation with me. Um, I think be- just a little bit before we start, um, I kind of want to go over like how we met and how mm-hmm. the topic came to be. So back in August, I was working on my doctoral project, which I completed. Thank God. (laughs) But it was on intimate partner violence. And basically the project dealt with getting providers to have the conversation more with their patients and increasing how often we are screening. Um, Another thing that we were trying to do was um, educate the staff and educate providers um, about domestic violence, intimate partner violence, because I feel like, you know, when we know better, when we know more, um, we're more inclined to screen. And so you came in and you did a training, you did a um, presentation, and it was very good. Um, the staff loves you. <laughs> they learned a lot. And so um, I was like, you know, when I do this, I have to have her come back. So, um, you know, without further ado, can you just give us a little bit about your background and about what you do? Yeah, thanks. So um, your group was awesome. And I said it to you earlier, too, when we at first met that I thought that project was really important. Um, because, you know, a lot of the work that I do at Women in Distress in my role is those kind of education initiatives. So uh, me and my team go out in the community to schools, to medical providers, to professionals, to almost anyone that'll have us and talk about domestic violence. Because we know we can't do it on our own. This is such a widespread issue that you know, it doesn't make sense for just us to be working on it. It really takes a community effort. So I thought it was awesome that you were already working on that. And that's one of the best ways to increase the chances of survivors getting safety is more knowledge in the community. Um, and that's actually how I came to domestic violence work too. A lot of folks think that, you know, only survivors get involved in this work or you have to kind of have a personal story to care. And while a lot of us do have personal stories, you know, I am lucky that I don't, which is kind of unusual almost just because of how much it happens. Uh, but I always say you don't need to be a survivor to care. So I found out about this actually through an internship that I did as part of my social work degree. Um, I was working at the state attorney's office in the victim advocate unit, and just so many of the cases we were seeing were domestic violence that really need most volunteer help. So I learned a lot about domestic violence there, and I've just since you know kept up with the field, and uh, now I'm doing this more education and prevention work. Uh, but yeah, we, we do a lot of stuff like that, so I'm really glad we got together. Okay, awesome, awesome. And I'm so glad that, you know, you have a passion for it because when you have a passion for it, you strive to learn more, you strive to get out of the community, you strive for awareness. And this project basically drove my passion for it, which is another reason why I chose to have this, um, this conversation. I think that this conversation is one that is overlooked because there is a stigma on the conversation or on the topic, um, yeah. it's almost kind of like, you know, some people feel like it's not their place, you know, to intervene, you know, and things like that. And I just want to use this conversation just to open up um, 
you know, more knowledge and just open up the opportunity for people to see that, hey, it involves us all. We're all a involves us all. So um, let's get into what intimate partner violence is. So um, what is it? You know, if someone were to ask you, what is an intimate partner violence and how can you um, tell the difference between this and, you know, normal domestic violence? How would you answer that question? Yeah, so domestic violence is a very legal term um, and that kind of calls up the legal definition, whereas intimate partner violence is a little bit more of an umbrella term. So just kind of put it into scope. Domestic violence in the Florida statute, at least in the state of Florida, is any assault, sexual assault, kidnapping, stalking, there's a whole long list in the statute, um, or any uh, you know, behavior that physically harms or kills a person, a family or household member. That's how they define it, family or household member. So it's very focused on physical abuse, very focused on like sexual abuse, um, and it's very limited to family or household members. So it doesn't have to just be intimate partners, it's anyone that's considered, quote, family or household member, which of course the law has all sorts of stipulations for that too. Um, what we view as intimate partner violence in in the work you know, that Women in Distress does and that you were kind of working with on the screening tool is expanded. So it does include the physical abuse, it includes the sexual abuse and stalking, but we see it all as about power and control in the relationship and it is between intimate partners, right? So it's any abusive tactic that one person uses over another to gain or maintain power and control in the relationship. So that could be you know, emotional abuse, financial abuse is huge, um, manipulation, gaslighting, psychological abuse, right? Things that might not physically harm the person, but are taking that control away from them, especially when we see like isolation, you know, your, your self-esteem gets really diminished. So we want to make sure like, I'm really glad you asked that first, just to set that foundation of, even though physical abuse is important and we shouldn't overlook it, and it happens in a lot of relationships, there's so many other types of emotion or of abuse as well that are also important to consider. Right, and so um, you just kind of mentioned um, the other types or forms of intimate partner violence in that definition, but I wanna like break each one down, you know, sure. so that um, our listeners are clear on what is what, because to my surprise, when you came to do the training, um, a lot of the staff didn't realize that there were other forms um, such as, you know, sexual, emotional abuse. And I feel that, you know, they're not the only ones there. You know, most people, when they think about domestic violence and they think about abuse, they think about the physical aspect of it only. And there's so many more. So I kind of want to um, clarify um, the different forms and what they are and, um, you know, what victims or what, you know, um, family members or friends should be looking out for. Yeah, for sure. And I think even what you said earlier about the stigma around it, you know, there's even a stigma of talking about not just physical abuse, but all the other ones too. Um, we know that not every type of abuse escalates to physical. So one of the most common and usually, no, there's not typically a pattern. We usually see in the history of like these abusive relationships that it starts out with like emotional, psychological abuse. So that's like pushing your boundaries, right? You're not comfortable holding hands and they're saying, but come on, we've been together for two months, do that, right? That's not, a, that, that in itself is not abusive, but they're starting to push your boundaries and kind of like get, again, set that foundation of I'm going to be in control and be making the decisions for us. Um, it's, you know, frequently criticizing you, which is different from arguing. We know that couples argue. It's normal. Um, I've never met any couple personally or professionally that has not fought. Uh, 
but it's about does that fight turn into disrespect and comment and one-sided or is it you know we're two different people coming together in a relationship we're going to disagree about stuff mm -hmm. um, so the emotional abuse comes up a lot with possessive jealousy um you know jealousy is just a feeling that you feel it's a normal human emotion when one person uses as an excuse to start saying well you can't hang out with those friends you can't see family we have to move away you need to quit that job that's now when they're starting to use that as an excuse for isolation. Um, you know, I need to check your phone. Again, all these little boundary things. Um, and the psychological abuse is huge too. Questioning, making you question what you're doing, what you said, what happened, uh, you know, telling you a false version of events or telling someone, telling your partner one thing one day and switching up on the next and pretending like nothing happened. We even have one survivor who, um, her partner would constantly move her keys and her purse at home. So she would you know, drop it off by the door, the coffee table or whatever. And he would purposely move it and she would go crazy looking for it. And then he would sneak it back and say, you're, you're, what are you, you're going crazy. Look how much I have to deal with with you, right? Um, so there's a lot of those little actions that over time make the victim feel powerless and make them feel like they have no control over who they can see, where they can go, and what they can do. So abuse is all about controlling how someone thinks, acts, and feels. Um, so that emotional psychological is huge. And one of the biggest we see is financial. That happens in upwards of 90% of abusive relationships, which can look like pressuring someone to quit a job, uh, keeping money from them, um, you know, ruining their credit score, especially if you're married and you have access to joint accounts and things like that. So uh, that's one of the most dangerous ones that we see as well, especially now with a lot of online banking and online kind of anonymous stuff. Right. And with intimate partner violence, um, sexual abuse is yeah. very common as well, too. Yeah. And folks, again, even with our idea of like what consent is in a relationship, we all also, you know, we think a lot, oh, you've been together for a while, even you're married. You know, marital rape is a crime. <laughs> it only became a crime in all 50 states in like 94 and 95, which is really sad, but it is a crime in all 50 states. Um, and that could look like rape, but it can also look like sexual coercion. You know, I mean, you don't want to have sex or you don't want to have like a certain type of sex. You don't want to do a certain act or you don't want to make out or kiss or whatever level of intimacy. Um, we even see reproductive abuse sometimes where uh, a partner will not be open purposely about any STI status or HIV status. They won't let their partner use protection. Um, you know, all these different kind of, again, manipulative, manipulative excuse me, power and control tactics uh, wrapped up in any, any of these forms. Or they may tamper with um, birth control, which is, you know, something I have also, I've seen, you know, while working. Um, right. You know, they may tamper with birth control they may yeah. force the person to keep a pregnancy or they may force them to yes. terminate. Um, you know, you see that as well too. And that- Yeah, and with the STI status, like keeping someone from their meds or not letting them go to the doctor and get meds or hiding you know, their meds or tossing them out. Right, right. Yeah. Okay. And so um, now another thing I wanted to talk about was the different phases of abuse. Um, I think that this is, important because um, chronic abusers will never change their behavior but I believe that when people who are in an abusive relationship they understand the cycle they understand the pattern they can break the pattern so um, I do think that the phases of abuse um, is important to understand um, both for the victim and also for family members and friends that might 
be witnessing that, you know, with the victim? Sure. Yeah, it's really hard to break out of, you know, one of the most common questions I get is like, well, why don't victims leave, right? If things are so bad, why don't they just get out of there? And it's because it is really difficult. One, you're emotionally stuck there, right? This person is constantly wearing you down, constantly telling you that no one else is ever going to love you, that you can't do anything on your own. It's really hard to fight against that, especially when you're hearing that really often. Um, and just finding a chance to, you know, we've even seen with the pandemic that folks are stuck at home. They're not going out in the community. They might not even have the space to make a phone call, whether that's to a hotline or someone they trust. Um, they might be wanting to stay away from doctors' offices and hospitals, even though they're pretty safe. You know, there might be that perception that they want to stay home because of the pandemic. They don't have nobody else is visiting them or seeing them, maybe apart from Zoom calls. So um, it's, it can be really difficult to navigate these situations. Um, but one of the things to understand is the escalation, right? So every single relationship, no relationship starts out abusive. It's never abusive on the first date. You can sometimes tell if you don't like jive on the first date, but it's never like abuse right away, right? It escalates over time. And so again, it's boundary pushing, it's pressuring, it's kind of like seeing where you're at. Um, and then it typically starts with the emotional verbal abuse. Um, and that can escalate as you know, as the abuser sets more expectations and sets more things of control and they become impossible to follow, then they find that's their excuse now to hit you or to punch a wall or break your phone, right? You didn't get dinner ready on time. You didn't tell me where you were going. You didn't text me back fast enough. All these really unrealistic expectations that now they're using as excuses to abuse you or call you names or whatever it is. Um, so we kind of see that happen, but you know, we've, and we've heard from, you might have heard of like the cycle of abuse when it comes to, you know, the honeymoon phase and then the tension building phase and then the incident of abuse. Um, that's true in a lot of abusive relationships. It doesn't happen like that in every abusive relationship. So I always make sure to point out, even in that honeymoon phase, even when he's giving you flowers and he's telling you he loves you and that he is going to change and he needs, you know, just another chance. That's also part of the abuse, right? That is also a manipulative tactic. Yeah. So even though, so there's almost even no honeymoon phase because it's also still abuse happening, right? Because it's that unequal power and control. Right, okay. So um, now warning signs. So yeah. what are some warning signs that family and friends, coworkers, you know, should look out for, you know, to recognize abuse? Like I want to talk about that. And then I also sure. want to talk about that warning signs for the victim, the person who was in the relationship. Yeah, so we'll start from the outside. Uh, one of the biggest ones is just frequent injuries and especially strange explanations for those injuries, right? So someone constantly has bruises or is wearing a lot of makeup or is wearing you know, really long clothes. I know air conditioning can get pretty cold in Florida, but you know, especially if it doesn't fit the weather and they're just trying to cover themselves up. Uh, you know, that, that's a little unusual and you can ask. Uh, and if you know you do ask them like, oh, well, I, I've been painting the house, I fell off the ladder again, you know, okay, how many times can you fall off a ladder bang into a door? Maybe once or twice, even three times, but it's happening really frequently. And again, those kind of like awkward explanations, that's what you want to look for. Um, and a big one is isolation, especially after a friend or family member gets in or a coworker gets into a new relationship. They suddenly start, you know, stop texting you. They can't go anywhere without their partner, or if they do, they have to take a picture of where they're at to prove where they're at. You know, those are all huge warning signs. Um, and just even look at the way that they talk, right? And I talk about this a lot with like medical professionals. If you're working with a patient 
and it's about their health and their care, of course, there are some decisions you're going to want to make as a couple, especially when it comes to OBGYN and baby, you know, like having a baby. Um, but, you know, if the other person is constantly answering, they're the one making eye contact with you. The other person is, you know, shriveled up. Their body language can even show it. You want to look for those unequal power dynamics when you're working with folks. Um, and the best thing to do in those situations is just to find an excuse to bring that person alone into the office or into the waiting room or into a, you know, an examination room and ask questions to them. Um, and same thing as a friend. Uh, if you're in a relationship, it may be you're kind of in that, uh, you don't know where things are going, but you're starting to feel a little uncomfortable. You want to look for, again, the frequent criticizing, um, possessive jealousy, constant texting and monitoring. If someone's pressuring you to share a phone password or social media passwords, um, if they want you to always have your location on. If, again, if you start feeling guilty for hanging out with friends or being around family, especially when your partner's not there, there's no reason for you to feel guilty about that. You're allowed to do your own stuff, uh, but if they're making you feel guilty, it's what you want to pay attention to. Um, and a lot of these warning signs are just that. Doesn't mean abuse is definitely happening, but you know, the more you, you kind of accumulate, the more likely it is that it might not be happening now, but it's happening down the line. So that's where we talk about, um, you know, the best way I explain it to folks is a healthy relationship is where both people feel comfortable, right? Again, it's not all roses and rainbows all the time, but you feel comfortable, you feel respected, you feel like a basic level of safety. Unhealthy, you start to feel uncomfortable, but things, you know, so you're not happy enough, you might be thinking about breaking up or just taking some space or you need to talk about some boundaries. The main difference between unhealthy and abusive, and this is where a lot of the red flags are, is that feeling of safety, whether that's emotional safety, verbal safety, and especially physical safety. You know, if you start feeling like you can't talk to your partner about things because of, you fear how they're going to react, or you feel like you're walking on eggshells all the time, or you're just scared of them more than you're enjoying being around them, that's one of those gut red flags you can pay attention to as well. I um, wanted to add, I was reading an article um, yesterday. Um, it was, it's by the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, and it indicated that strangulation is a warning sign. Strangulation is a symptom of severe abuse. Um, and then there was a study that they talked about that um, non-fatal strangulation was reported in 45% of homicide attempts and 43% of actual homicides. So it's, it's really related. So if a person, if that's the form of abuse um, that the person is experiencing, um, it is a big warning sign. So certain types of, uh, I think the victims should pay attention to the type of abuse that they may be experiencing. Um, so I just kind of wanted to add that as well. Yeah, no, I'm really glad you did. So there are some high lethality indicators that are like, especially right, like lead to homicide or more likely to lead to homicide that we look for even like this is when we answer hotline calls or we have our first intake with a, with a survivor, we go through a lethality checklist and strangulation is one of those really big ones. And folks don't even know that even if you, you weren't, even if the survivor, you know, didn't lose control of her airway, just that, that act and that pressure, you want to have a lot of negative health effects, but that's a huge red flag. Um, same thing with pet abuse. Someone is threatened to hurt a pet or have actually hurt a pet if they have access to weapons and have threatened to use them. Um, one of the best ways to assess risk and fear with a survivor is ask her what her level of fear is, right? How do you feel scared 
and do and to ask, do you think he has the capacity to kill you or the capacity to hurt you further? She knows her situation best. So especially, yeah, if they talk about strangulation, sexual abuse, um, weapons in the home, threats, pet abuse, those are those things that you really want to take more immediate action on um, and ask about that level of fear. But yeah, that's a that's a really good point. I'm glad I'm glad they're writing about that in that article. It's really important. <laughs> Yeah, because I was reading, I was like, oh my goodness, you know, you don't really yeah. think, you know, abuse is abuse. You don't really think that a certain type would sure. you know, indicate that the next action, you know, would be homicide. But there are some studies and they also talked about head trauma and different things like that that are also related as well. Actually, we have um, a new, it's relatively new in the state of Florida. We've had it for a number of years now called Invest, which is there's one advocate that we have that specifically works on these high lethality cases because they were just seeing these indicators across the board uh, in police reports and studies and research. Um, and so what that advocate does is uh, she works with local police departments and BSO, the Broward Sheriff's Office, and she gets every single police report that involves domestic violence and reads through it. And if there are those high lethality indicators like we just talked about, she'll reach out to the survivor and be able to advocate to the detective and kind of like intervene just because we've seen that as such a huge risk for homicide that we wanted to step in and intervene. Okay. So um, let's talk about statistics. So um, what is the, the prevalence? You know, I know one thing I do want to mention that we haven't yet is that um, intimate partner violence can happen in all different forms of relationships and all genders. Um, I just focused on it in my project and on this podcast because it does affect women in disproportionate um, rates. But I kind of want to talk about the overall um, prevalence of it, like, and how has the pandemic influenced IPV? Like, have you seen surges? Have you seen um, changes in the numbers? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's so important to talk about the stats because it really puts things into perspective. Um, and again, like you said, this is often a stigmatized issue, but so many people go through this. Um, so statistically worldwide, one in three women will go through some form of intimate partner violence, which, I mean, we would just need one more woman on the call here and we would have the statistic, right? That's, a, that's an enormous number. Um, in the United States, it's one out of every four women. So we're doing slightly better than the world average. That is, that's a quarter of all women in the US. Um, and something to consider about those statistics and all of them that I'll have for you is they're all underreported, right? These are all underestimates because we have to rely on just data. We know that folks aren't reporting, especially when it's not physical abuse. So even though the statistic includes emotional and verbal and sexual, we know that folks don't often report until it gets physical or until it gets sexual. Um, for men in the US, it's one in nine, which definitely underreported as well because we know that there's an extra stigma for men and for LGBTQ folks because they're not seen as those quote unquote typical victims. Now you're right to say this is still disproportionately an issue that affects women negatively and that's no accident. Um, you know that that's part of gen harmful gender stereotypes and other forms of oppression uh, but we do know that like you said it can happen to anyone unfortunately we just know it's underreported uh, in the male community and in, LGBT in the LGBTQ community. Um, but it's, I mean, I think the statistic too is that 10 million U.S. women and men every year will go through, will just experience a physical assault by an intimate partner every year. Um, and again, that's just what's reported. So the, 
statistics are astounding. And, and back in October, which was Domestic Violence Awareness Month, um, we, we usually pick a theme to kind of like build our awareness efforts around. And this year it was behind the mask because it's sort of a second pandemic. Um, and I used to, even before the coronavirus, I used to talk about it um, as a pandemic and I still don't treat that language lightly, but I still believe it is based on those statistics and just how much we're seeing it uh, in our community. Um, and it has changed a little bit because of COVID. The, it's, there's some, been some news reports nationally and, and locally that uh, it's increased, which we've seen here as well. We've seen an increase in severity, which is the most concerning. Um, so domestic violence might have already been present or that unequal power and control might have already been present in the relationship to begin with. But maybe there was no physical abuse and no sexual abuse. And now the added extra stressors of staying at home, maybe losing a job, uh, losing connection to the family, not being able to go out has just heightened the intensity and the frequency of violence. Um, we've also found that it's been a bigger barrier to get help. So right at the beginning of when the pandemic hit South Florida, which was like March, April, we saw a really precipitous dive in our hotline calls, which was very concerning because we knew domestic violence just hadn't stopped, right? It was that folks no, no longer had a safe place or an opportunity to call the hotline because now they're stuck at home. They can't really go anywhere. There's no safe place for them to be able to have that phone call. So it's, it's gotten more evened out now. And I think that's because more things have opened, folks have gone back to school, you know, there's different sort of things, but it's still um, still a really big issue. And the pandemic has definitely put up that extra barrier for survivors and leaving. Right. And you've also seen um, new cases arise too, um, where abuse, you may see abuse in a home where it wasn't there, you know, presently before. You know, um, and I think it's like you said, because of the added stressors of the pandemic of people losing their jobs, um, mm -hmm. you know, not having money to pay bills and being stuck in their, their home. Um, right. Well, and think about it, too. If one of the barriers to you leaving was you were trying to save up money to put, you know, first last security on another apartment and now you just lost your job. Right. right? I think twice about leaving even when it's an abusive situation so yeah it's really exacerbated the barriers that have already been present so um and then that kind of leads me kind of into my next question um how do you think culture and family dynamics you know play um it, you know how how do they play their role in abuse yeah, so it's kind of, I, I see it both like in the prevention of domestic violence and how we understand why domestic violence happens and then also like the supports available to survivors. So first is one of the biggest reasons survivors don't leave is because they don't have supportive family or friends. Their friends don't believe them, their family, uh, especially when it's like a religious, you know, maybe you come from a religion in a community where divorce isn't okay, right? Or it's frowned upon and it's socially stigmatized. If you leaving your abusive partner means you divorcing them, you might be choosing between isolating your support system, who's going to look down on you for that decision because they don't understand what's happening, or getting to safety and leaving your abusive partner, right? So we sometimes see those barriers, and if folks aren't willing to look past those things and support uh, their family or friend, that could be a real barrier to leaving. Um, same thing even just, you know, abusers are often very manipulative and super charming and pleasant to be around when they're around other people. Um, and so, you know, we might have parents or family or friends saying, well, he's so nice and he's just going through a lot and you're, you know, your kids need a father. 
um, and emphasizing more keeping the family together instead of the whole family is unsafe because we're still with this person. Um, and that comes from just, again, a lack of talking about this issue, right? I don't think it's because people want to hurt their survivor or, or mean any bad intentions by it. They mean the best of intentions. They're trying to look out for them. They just don't understand the complexity of what's happening because we don't talk about it. Um, and then I also see it kind of on that prevention end, right? So we talk about domestic violence and intimate partner violence as a learned behavior, which is why I think it's preventable. Because if it, it's a learned behavior, it can be unlearned and it can be unlearned for the next generations. Um, but we learn about relationships from everywhere. Um, media, music, our communities, our neighborhoods, our you know, faith communities, our work communities. But one of the biggest influences on how we think about relationships is the adults in our home and our close family members and our, our you know, the family that's around us. Um, so if you grew up in a home or around folks that have experienced intimate partner violence, you're more likely to continue that cycle yourself because that's what you're learning, right? And that's a huge influence. And it's not always like a conscious, I saw my dad hit my mom, so I'm gonna do that when I grow up and marry a woman. It's more, again, these are the expectations in the relationship, right? I'm your partner, so I'm allowed to do this. This is my role in the relationship. And if you don't get other signals that invalidate that, you're gonna take that on. You know, we get messages at, you know, the family level, the relationship level, the societal level, the community level. And if all those messages aren't invalidating violence proactively and saying that's not okay, then we're gonna keep having it happen. So that's, we kind of almost see it as a public health issue at this point of just, we need to change, you know, the socio-ecological model and knowledge attitudes and beliefs at each level to really see that social change. But that's a lot of where we see the influence. And in. so if families are afraid to talk about it, yeah. we're kind of Exactly. And that's why I always say, I think that um, the abuse is kind of like the symptom is uh -huh. a superficial act of the problem. Um, I really think that um, the reason for abuse is much deeper, just like you mentioned, it's about the experience and emotional things, reacting that way. So I do think that we need to have um, um, to help the abuse. Um, we, think about, we do think about the victim a lot, which we should, um, but we should also think about the abuser, you know, why they are doing it, you know, what services are out there to be that way this doesn't get Right, and so much of that is even starts in for teens, you know, and young people just, let's talk openly about healthy relationships. I think we always assume what we think we know is what's healthy and we don't, you know, so kids deserve that talk about this is what respect means. This is what your boundaries are. This is how you can hold your boundaries and, you know, someone you should respect other people. And this is what to reasonably accept, you know, expect from a romantic partner um, and what's okay and what's not okay. That's because so many of the abusers today just haven't gotten that information, right? So they've been taught and it's been validated for them that this is an okay way to treat their partner and no one's gonna try to stop them, right? Their family's not gonna say anything, their friends aren't gonna say anything. So I'm gonna keep doing it because I'm getting the relationship I want. So you're right. Um, and there are batters intervention programs out there. So women in distress, we do focus on the victim and survivor, um, but there are programs locally and around the country that are for batters um, to focus on the root cause of that battering behavior, right? And that abusive behavior, um, which is really good. 
do you know of any programs here in South Florida for the battle? Do we have one of the um, there? There are a number of them. Uh, one of the ones I know we we use a lot, and he's been really supportive. Uh, Clay Robinson runs R and R Domestic Services, so that's one of the more popular and uh, bigger programs in Broward. Um, we actually, if you know, if someone calls our hotline, we have that list available. If you call two one one or even the courthouse, they have a list as well. So. Um, if someone is looking, you know, a lot of the times abusers don't end up enrolling in those programs until it's court mandated, but someone can enroll in those things voluntarily as well. So, if, you know, any of anyone who's listening is hearing some of these red flags and thinking that they're, they might be doing this to a partner or have and they want to work on those issues, uh, definitely look for one of those battering, batterers intervention programs, VIP. Okay. Um, now, immigration and abuse and refugees and abuse. I think um, that is something that we should also talk about. It's something that is also overlooked, you know, um, and I think it's mainly because it's under, you know, reported. Sure. Um, so what, would, what would be your take on immigration abuse? Yeah, it's, I would say it's like, I always say this, abusers get very creative, unfortunately. Um, so when we talk about even like that power and control wheel and all these different forms of abuse, not even just limited to those ones we talked about earlier. So we do see with, uh, you know, survivors that are immigrants, whether they're here, quote unquote, legally or illegally, uh, the abuser can use their immigration status as part of that power control, right? So if you ever leave me, I'm gonna call ICE, I'm gonna take your green card, you need me, you need to stay with me to stay in this country. Um, you know, if, you, if you're trying to flee a country and go to somewhere else, they might threaten to keep the kids behind or say that you kidnap the kids by bringing them somewhere else. Um, so often it plays part in the power and control, and then it can be, you know, it also just creates fear of the legal system. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk so much about, okay, go get a restraining order injunction or call the police if things get bad, but if you're an immigrant or even a person of color, you know, who might even be a citizen, you might not want to get involved with the legal system. Um, so we have to understand that there are different services that are needed in different, um, this is where culture does come in and identity does come into play. It doesn't necessarily affect your, your propensity to go through or your, or your you know, probability to go through domestic violence, but it affects your experience of the violence and the resources available to you. So, um, you know, fear of the court system and then just language barriers. If someone doesn't speak fluent English, even though, you know, we have bilingual advocates, a lot of agencies do, we have access to a language line. So for any language that we don't have advocates that speak, we have that resource. You know, we know that, but a lot of folks in the community don't, so they might hesitate to call a hotline if they don't feel like they're going to be able to be understood and get help. Yeah, and I think health care providers play a huge role when it comes down to abuse and immigration and refugees because we may come in contact with them before social workers, before you, mm -hmm. before um, law enforcement will, we'll see them first. And that's why I think screening is so imperative and it's important that we screen everyone um, because if we're resourceful and if we're knowledgeable um, and if we screen, we could be of service. We can help, you know, um, these people out, you know. Um, well, and, you know, I think the best thing about screening is it sends that signal to that person that this is okay and I'm here to help, right? And that's why I loved that you did that project because that's even the most important thing of like, I'm not only connecting you to resources, but I am in this practice telling you that this is okay and you're not the only one to go through this. And that can mean, that can make a huge world of difference for a survivor, especially a survivor who is an immigrant or who might, you're right, like might not 
you're the first one seeing them, they immediately get that message of acceptance and of help, which is Great. so um, for the most part, we did have some patients who were uncomfortable with it because it was kind of like a new practice, you know, that we were doing. Um, but for the most part, most of our patients appreciated it. And we um, also had some that kind of told us, you know, hey, this happened to me some years ago and no one ever asked me about it. And, you know, they were so appreciative about it. So I think that patients are willing to have the conversation, but as we keep saying, there's a stigma on it. And so that kind of creates a barrier to even asking and starting the conversation. So I think that the more we know, the more we're informed, the more we're comfortable with, with it, um, you know, we're, we're just able to kind of rise above that barrier and to and just screen. And the more we screen, the more we, you know, open up the conversation, we can help women, you know, who are immigrants. and who are refugees and who are here illegally or undocumented, you know, get the services that they need. You know, them being immigrants or being undocumented should not um, be, you know, prevent the services that they deserve. Yeah, I completely agree. Um, and I'm, like I said, I think it's amazing that you're leading the charge on that in, in the work that you do. Um, and it is, it's so important and it makes, makes the world a difference. So um, now I wanted to talk about ways to support um, victims. Um, we often see, you know, family members and friends try to support their loved one. And I think we kind of talked about this a little earlier. Um, and then we become frustrated or they might become frustrated when the victim remains in the relationship and they don't really accept the help. Um, how can we again explain, you know, why some victims choose to stay and how can we still be supportive to them, you know, if they chose yeah. to be in the relationship? Yeah, it's hard. And I'll tell you with all of this, it's so much easier said than done. Uh, it's a lot harder when you're trying to do it, right? Especially when it's someone you know, whether it's a patient you're working with or a family member or friend, you know, you want them to be safe and it might be hard to understand why they're not just leaving. But, you know, there's another statistic that um, it takes a woman an average of seven times to leave an abusive relationship before she leaves for good. And that's the average, right? Which is yeah. absurd. So thinking about it from helping, trying to help someone in your own life, they're not going to, even if they, they do leave the first time, chances are they're not going to stay away, right? So we have to be, the first thing is just being aware of that and just being prepared to be patient, right? And don't, don't think that you're not helping if they haven't left yet. The most, the most, one of the most important things a survivor needs is just someone in her corner. Because again, with the social stigma, so many places she's gonna turn aren't gonna understand what she's going through or might cause more harm. So you just saying, I understand, I'm here to listen, I'm here to help with whatever you wanna do is already a great start. Um, and like we said, there are a lot of reasons why survivors will stay and we shouldn't victim blame on that because it is really hard. You know, if they don't have another place to go, um, if they don't have the finances to leave, if they have children with this person, they might be able to leave, but they got to take them to visitation every, you know, every week. And it's hard to fully get that person out of your life. Um, and the number one reason is fear and safety. Um, the most dangerous time for survivors when she's leaving an abusive relationship, because that's when the abuser is losing all the power and control and might do the most extreme things to get it back. 
Um, so she might just say, now is not the time. He's threatened me. I know he has access to you know, the weapons he's threatened me with. Now is not the time for me to leave. And we have to believe her because she's the one living it. And she's the one that's going to have to deal with the consequences of any decision she makes, you know, whether that is to stay or leave. So, um, you know, the most, I would say, instead of asking why, or why haven't you left yet? Better question to ask is what can I do to support you? Right. Um, because again, it might not be leaving. So you could, you know, if you have room at your house for her to stay, offer that. If not, don't ever offer anything you don't have or don't feel comfortable offering. You don't have to save them. But even just having like a code word or code phrase set up with them. So if they text you, it's going to rain today with that specific, you know, typing, you know, oh, I got to have to call the police for her. Oh, I have to make an excuse to go over. Or let me call her on the phone so she has an excuse to talk to someone, right? Um, you could set up whatever that means, but having that kind of quick code word can really help someone too. And then just offering resources. You know, you do not have to be the expert. You don't have to feel like you're carrying it all on your shoulder. Um, you know, sometimes offering the resource and even calling the resource with them in the room before they ever have to, just so they can get a sense of what it's going to be like, can be really, really helpful. Right. And I think being patient, you know, <clears throat> with the victim is, yeah. is helpful. And yeah, and that's true as providers as well. Like, I'll say even, you know, we're, we're human here, even the work we do, and we have to talk about it as well when it comes to self-care of just you know, you work with someone, you give them so much, you, you cheer for them, you support them, and then they go back to the abuser, and you know you're going to see them in another five, six months, but you just have to hope for the best, hope that you safety, you know, and just wait for them to come back or wait for them to figure whatever they need to out. But yeah, it's a whole lot of patience and a whole lot of love and support. Right. And so now, if the victim wants to leave the situation, you know, mm -hmm. can we educate them, you know, a safe way to approach it. Sure. Yeah. So you can safety plan with them. I recommend um, if you're, even if the survivor herself doesn't want to call the hotline, you can call the hotline as a provider, as a friend or a family member and get some safety planning tips to share with the survivor or walk through the situation. But um, some things to consider, you know, have them pack an emergency go bag. Uh, if they're scared, their abuser's going to find it pack one for them too and say it's a hurricane preparedness bag. You know, we live in South Florida, you never know. Um, but have, you know, copies of important documents, uh, clothes, books, whatever those like, you know, any valuables kind of all ready to go. Uh, encourage them to keep their phone charged regularly in case they ever need to call and get out quickly. Same thing with gas in the car. Try to keep close to a full tank in case you have to make a quick exit. Um, the code word is really good. That's very good for kids as well. Um, for domestic violence and other situations, one of our child and family therapists always says she uses aloha. So if a child greets her by saying aloha that she's working with, she knows that the child is uncomfortable uh, without it seeming weird, right? It's like a little off, but it's enough where the, the, ad, or the therapist can know. So, you know, setting up those sorts of things and then just like before they leave, figure out the place that they're going to go, whether that's staying with family or friends, coming to a confidential shelter, uh, moving out of state or visiting someone out of state, right? Have that plan of where exactly we're going to go and how we're going to get there before they leave. Right. Uh, unless it's an immediate kind of emergency on the fly, but as much as possible planning. And then I encourage not to write down any of those plans unless the person really feels comfortable with it because you want to kind of keep it up in your mind so that way the abuser can't find anything on the phone or a piece of paper. 
And would you recommend, in, um, you know, informing family members, friends, or anyone, you know, of the plans? You know, is that usually involved in an exit plan? Yeah, I would say if if they're in, if they're going to be involved in it, so say like you know you're trying to find a place to stay, you might ask a trusted friend. Um, depending on their relationship with the abuser, you don't want it to get back to the abuser, right? And you want to kind of keep it confidential as much as, as it's safe for the person. So always go by what the survivor feels comfortable. Never pressure her to tell family or friends, but just say, and kind of walk her through the risks too. If she wants to tell everybody before she leaves, say, well, that might, you know, get around back to him. That might not be the safest thing. Uh, but yeah, if you're going to stay with this friend and her neighbor, probably good to have that conversation go a little more in depth about what's happening before they say yeah you can sleep on my couch for a few months um the other thing that too is is technology so uh you know check your location services so many things track our location and abusers have gotten again very creative and very good with technology so making sure those things are off um and asking family and friends once you've left maybe not to post about you on social media and things like that unless they're comfortable um that could be another great way to keep them safe. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up social media as well because that is a big tool because everyone likes to post their status. They like, you know, and they like to add where they are at the time. So I think um, that was a good <clears throat> point you made about social media. Yeah, and I always say, you know, if you're a survivor, use your social media if you want. Like, you shouldn't feel like that's taken away from you. Just be cautious about it, right? So maybe don't post a picture or say, like, I went to go get pizza at you know, Kirk's down the street, and like it's a very specific address, you know, you kind of want to watch what you post, but you can still have access to it. But yeah, it's, um, because that's often where abusers are going to first look after you've left, is where are you posting about you, what's going on. Exactly. Now, while we're on this topic, um, I wanted to talk about the resources that are available, mm -hmm. maybe give um, some information, because someone may be listening, you know, they may be um, wondering who they can call, what's the phone number. And so I kind of want to go over some information. Yeah, so uh, our 24-hour crisis hotline, this is 24-7, 365. It's the easiest way to get in touch with us and get the services, whether it's immediate or you just kind of want to talk to someone down the road. Uh, that number is 954-761-1133. Um, we also have a TDDTY line, which you can find on our website if you're deaf and hard of hearing. Um, we also, there's 211 in the community, which I always say, if you're scared of writing it down or saving it in your phone, 211 is very easy to memorize. Um, and that's a great resource. They also manage the suicide prevention hotline in Burr County and a lot of other, they're a gateway to a lot of other resources. Um, so 211 is a great thing to remember if you fear, you know, taking down any information. Um, you could also go to our website at womenindistress.org. Uh, there's another really great website called loveisrespect.org, which has a lot of great resources, but also one of my favorite things about them is they have a chat, uh, sorry, a chat text box as a hotline. So if you are scared that, you know, you call us and the phone call is going to come up on your service provider on your phone, or you don't want to have text messages saved, that chat box is really easy to use and then it disappears after you're done. Um, so that's a great resource for someone as well. It is a national number, so you might not get immediate services, but if you're just looking to talk to somebody, that's a great resource as well. Um, and I could, you know, there, I, there's a Florida statewide domestic violence outline as well. So there's a lot out there for folks, um, you know, with, whether you live in the state of Florida or in Broward County or wherever you're listening from, there is help 
uh, there's a domestic violence center serving every county in the state of Florida. So there are folks out there who won't pressure you to get services, but we'll just listen. And then if you want the services, uh, they're there. Right. And then that leads me to the next question about um, mandating um, or mandated reporting. Um, yeah. One of the barriers of screening that providers face is really not knowing what to do once a patient has said, okay, yes, I am, you know, abused. Okay, well then what's next? So um, I kind of want to talk about, you know, mandated reporting here in Florida. I know different states have different um, laws regarding that, but I want to specifically talk about um, reporting laws here in Florida. Sure, yeah. So in the state of Florida, every single adult is considered a mandated reporter, which means if you hear about uh, child abuse or vulnerable adult abuse, we have to make a report to the domestic, uh, Department of Children and Families. Um, now, domestic violence by itself is not something you'd have to mandate report. So if, you know, me as a, as a woman who's in her 20s comes to you and says, I'm a victim of domestic violence, my partner is abusing me, there's no children involved, you do not have to mandate report, right? Because I'm not a vulnerable adult. I don't have a disability as, well, as far as I told you, right? So that would not be something you have to report. Uh, and it's actually good practice not to call a hotline without the survivor's consent. Because again, her, she knows her safety best. What would change that is if she had children involved who were directly exposed to the domestic violence or be also being abused, right? Or again, if there was a vulnerable adult like an elder or a person with disabilities who was also a victim of that abuse in the household. Um, it's really important when you're speaking with a survivor to say that upfront before she starts getting into her story. So that way, if you do have to make a mandated report, it doesn't feel like you're violating her trust, right? She can decide how much of the story to tell you. Because if you don't know the information, you can't talk about it. So, uh, so like I said, all adults in the state of Florida are mandated reporters, and then certain professions like medical professionals, social workers, uh, teachers, those are considered professionally mandated reporting, but it's the same guidelines. So um, domestic violence on its own is not something you have to report, but when there are children involved, public adults involved, report. If you're on the fence, maybe that you know the person has children, but they live 80% of the time with the grandmother and not with the partner, um, you know, that's up to you to make that call. I always say it's better to call and make the report because it's not guaranteed that anything's gonna happen. Right. You make your report with the information you have, DCF will tell you, hey, this isn't enough information. Thank you for making the report. It's noted, but there's not going to be, you know, investigation. Uh, so I always say if, if you're on the fence, better to make the report and let DCF decide if there's enough rather than to, I didn't make the report and now, you know, there's an issue. Okay. So what if you are with the patient or with the woman and she has a child with her and she's telling you, okay, I'm the one that's being abused. He doesn't really touch the child, you know, the child is unharmed. Um, do you still report it or? I would look at them the severity, like is the abuse physical? What's the frequency or severity? Because um, we know that children who even just live in a home where domestic violence exists, even if the child isn't particularly harmed, they can still get those negative effects, right? And it doesn't mean it can't escalate. Right. So I want to look at, is there a threat of harm to the child, right? So I would say if it's physical abuse and especially like really severe physical abuse, you might want to do that. 
Uh, if it's more emotional abuse than anything, if she's just in fear of physical abuse happening, uh, again, you kind of want to rely on her sense of like what's safe, you know, what's safe. If she feels like, no, I really feel like my child is safe. I really don't worry about them. It's just, it's all directed at me. You know, that's where you might not have enough. But again, something you could call DCF about and they can tell you it's enough or it's not. They look at, um, they call it family violence threatening or family, like a, a violent environment threatening a child. I don't think that's the exact wording, but it's something along those lines. So they'll kind of determine if it's enough for them to investigate. Um, but I would look at the severity of it in that case. Awesome. <laughs> um, yeah, no, this is great talking to you. I, I really appreciate it. And it's been very informative. Um, you know, I really hope that we were able to help someone who might be in you know, a difficult situation or maybe, you know, very resourceful for a family member or a friend, you know, who's looking to help someone. And I just want to thank you again for your time. Um, I know it's late. <laughs> Um, but I thank you for your commitment and your time and just, you know, being there for our community and for those who really um, need the resources. Yeah, no, and thank you for having me and, and doing all that you do and doing this. Um, like I said at the top, it, we can't do our work without folks like you in the community who care and are doing the work and connecting with survivors. So thank you. This has been, this has been really fun. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Eavesdrop. Wow, this was a very informative session. I hope you enjoyed it. I want to thank my guest, Emily Jonas, for sharing her knowledge about intimate partner violence. I pray that this podcast was life-changing for someone who may be in a difficult situation. If you are listening and this is your story, I want you to know that you are not your situation. No, mm -mm. you are more than that. You are a woman and that automatically makes you a queen. You are someone's sister, mother, friend, aunt, neighbor, co-worker, and the list goes on and on and on. Hold your head up high because you are all that in a bag of chips. <laughs> I am praying for you. And hey, remember to follow me on Instagram. If you have any questions or a topic you would like featured on, a sh on the show, send me an email to drshalanabattle at gmail.com. Again, that is drshalanabattle at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram at therealeavesdrop underscore podcast. Until then, be well, be whole, and be blessed. Bye.